These separate units are what we tend to think of with nuclear families. But in most of human experience, in traditional societies, there are lots of other folks around. This is Not What You Think. I'm Sasha Rosen. There's this thing which human beings have in common, we think, only with pilot whales and killer whales. We live long enough to have menopause. When a woman reaches the age where she stops having her periods and can't have kids anymore, at least not without some serious IVF. Menopause has given us another thing that I think only human beings really have, which is grandmas. Dr. Kristen Hawkes is a lead proponent of the grandmother hypothesis, which says that women tend to live to be grandmas because it's pretty good for us as a species. Kristen is, as far as I know, one of the few people on earth to have used the phrase, if I were a chimpanzee, I would have been dead decades ago. Kristen, thanks for being here and alive. Thank you so much for having me. At this age, what's the difference between you and a chimpanzee, apart from being alive? Well, that's pretty serious. And thinking about that as an especially distinctive feature of our species, and probably our lineage, our longevity can initially seem very weird. Think about all the ways you think that humans differ from chimpanzees. I mean, they're hairy knuckle walkers and they don't talk. And we are bipeds and we use tools and we talk and we have these big brains. But there are reasons to think that maybe one of the things that stands behind a lot of these other features is our longevity. One of the debates in the literature is whether or not menopause is the consequence of women stopping having their periods earlier than ancestors did. And so now we have menopause where before females were fertile to much older ages. Or the alternative, which is the grandmother hypothesis that I think is worth betting on, which is that what changed was this increased longevity. And the reason to favor that one is this pattern we see generally in the great apes. All of us, female fertility ends at about 45 or, you know, in the 40s. But what's different about us is this much slower aging, so we usually outlive the end of our fertility. My collaborator, Peter Kim, who's here at the University of Sydney, this young mathematical biologist, he's built a model. If only we had a time machine, you know, we could go back and see whether did any of this really happen. We don't have a time machine, which is why we rely on mathematical models. He's built a model in which the life history in the initial condition is like the other great apes. And then what happens when grandmothering starts to pay off? What shifts is the longevity and the other features of life history? So we get to something that looks so much like what we see in humans. What happens to a body in menopause? What changes? So primates menstruate. Not all animals do that. There are some primates that are seasonal breeders, but monthly cycling is very typical. So females have periods, they menstruate, and it is that menstrual period in which they ovulate. But there's this very odd thing, this is true of mammals in general, female reproductive physiology is very weird, so that mammals, including us, have all of the oocytes, all of the things that they're going to ovulate. So like the eggs, which are their the half eggs. of the reproduction thing. Exactly. The thing that made all of you out there listening and me and Zasha was the joining together of one sperm and one egg. Well, females have all the eggs they're ever going to have in our species when they're five-month-old fetuses. 
and then we start losing them. And we lose most of them, in fact, before we're born. And then we continue to lose them before we start menstruating. They are going through this process of atresia. They are being lost. And then we ovulate, I don't know, a maximum of maybe 400 of them. That's all, even though we started out with 7 million, good heavens. And then the number that are left get to be small enough that running this hormone cycle with the brain doesn't work anymore. And so what happens is there is a last menstrual period. Now, actually, that happens in other primates, but usually they don't live long enough to reach that. There are three species of macaques where it's very well described. They go through the same thing at about the age of 25, but man, they do not live to 25. If you're a monkey, not going to happen. And if you're a chimpanzee and you manage to live into your 40s, which even in captivity is rare, you might outlive your cycling, but it's a tiny fraction that do. Compare that to us. We end up with this period of life, which is post-fertile. And in a lot of ways, that seems like an evolutionary riddle, since evolution is always about leaving copies of genes in future generations. And things that make the carriers leave more copies are the things that we end up with. So how did that happen in us? The thing that's odd is that in us, women who are no longer leaving offspring are yet favored by selection to be aging at a rate that's slow enough to give us that postmenopausal life stage. So how did that happen? Just before we hop into that, one of the things that this theory really focuses on is childcare. We grabbed Bart from our back office. I'm Bart, and I have a two-year-old. What is the crazy of childcare like? Obviously, that's different for everyone. But I think the crazy is just the relentlessness of it. Just that there is never a moment where you are not on, where you are not performing. There's no point at which you're not caring for the child. You're not playing, you're not preparing meals. It's just constant movement, which is something that I thought I had an idea of, but just had absolutely no concept of how exhausting that can be. There's the two of you, you and your partner, in this nuclear family of three. That's but right. Is it just you guys who do the caring? Absolutely not. We have a very supportive family network. My son is the first grandchild in my family, so... My father and my mother are crazy for him. Both my parents still work, though. So it's mainly my partner. Her parents are mostly retired. And her mum, actually, as we speak, is looking after him, which just makes all the difference. I have friends who don't have that support network, and I can just see how much harder it is for them. I feel like we've, in the last few months, established an equilibrium. Two years in. Two years in, yeah. One of the things that's really odd about the way we organize life in our current socioecology, people living in Sydney and most of Australia and most of the US and most of the world, although there are some exceptions, we separate our nuclear families from each other. It's true of a lot of places in the States, maybe in Oz as well, that people don't even know their neighbors sometimes. These separate units 
are what we tend to think of with nuclear families. But in most of human experience, in traditional societies, those nuclear families are linked up and there are lots of other folks around who are related both to the parents, if they happen to be together, and the kids. And the kids not only have these relationships with mom and dad and even grandma, and in Bart's case, four grandparents and this one child, the presence of grandparents is part of the story, but then there are all these aunts and uncles and all these other folks. So the parents are not carrying the load and the fertility levels. Bart has a two-year-old son. The average birth spacing in our species is somewhere between two and three years, which means that in a lot of situations, Bart's son would be having a new sibling coming along and this is nothing like what human experience has mostly been like. There are a lot of positives about that. We worry about population growth, and one of the things that goes with the very high fertility that's been most of human experience is a lot of child mortality. Children dying young and really young, like really before young. five years old we're talking about. Absolutely. Sometimes before one. In most societies on the globe today, although there are some exceptions, the chances are really good that a little girl will live to adulthood. That has not been the story of our lineage. It's not the case in most traditional societies. A lot of you listening, I'm sure, will think, oh, but isn't this longevity thing that we talk about, this postmenopausal thing, this people living to be so old? Don't we have a lot of old people now and we didn't used to? Don't I know that life expectancy only got to be greater than 50 at the turn of the 20th century? But the reason life expectancy is so low in a lot of places and was historically low and is in places where people hunt and gather for a living is not because there aren't any old people. It's because of all the kids that die young and life expectancy is an average so of So it kind the of skews lives. the numbers. Way skews the numbers. Less than 40 is typical of hunting and gathering populations where we have pretty good demographic data. But if we just look at the adults, about a third of the women are past their fertility. And we look at hunter-gatherer societies because we think a lot of them reflect similar conditions to early humans thousands upon thousands of years ago. On the planet, the only member of our genus that's left is us modern people. But there are places where people live their lives in ways that are similar to what all of our ancestors did before the origins of agriculture. It was some field work you did on the Hadza people in Tanzania where you first proposed your approach to the grandmother hypothesis. One of the things that really struck us with this work with Hadza foragers, so these are people who live on wild foods in northern Tanzania. This is a place that's especially interesting for people who want to know what happened in our ancestral past because it's a part of the world where a lot of the features of ecology now are similar. There are a lot of the same big animals that can be hunted, a lot of the same wild plants. And this is where there is a record, a fossil record of our evolution that is so deep. So it's a part of the world that's especially interesting. So we're looking at people who are modern people just like us, but they live on wild foods. Can't go to the grocery store, right? Can't go to the garden. None of those things are going on. So how do people do it? It's not so much that they haven't changed in thousands of years, more that they face the same set of problems. Thank you. That's right. So we're looking at modern people like us 
but they confront a set of economic realities that have this really deep history before the origins of agriculture, say, 10,000 years ago, which from the point of view of somebody like me is like yesterday. What were the Hadza people like? What would people in Australia find familiar and what would they find different? Well, there'd be a language barrier, but otherwise they're people just like us, except that every day you can't go to the refrigerator or the cupboard or the grocery store. You go and collect wild food, and that's the way you feed the kids. That's the way you feed yourself. Men hunt and women gather. So our project was to look very closely at how you actually managed to do that, living on wild food there. But we didn't have any expectation that the old ladies were going to be such an important part of what was going on. We wanted to see how it worked for people of different sexes and ages. You know, they were so generous to let us hang about and follow them around and weigh what they got and watch what they did and time everything. And what came out of doing that was discovering that these old women, postmenopausal women who were, we estimated then, in their 60s, and my Longtime collaborator, Nick Blurton-Jones, who's done the demography, he's, he's just published this wonderful book, The Demography and Evolutionary Ecology of Hadza Hunter-Gatherers. Lots of work on making sure that we've got the age estimates right and so on. Because there are no birth certificates. This is... this is the problem. You can't say, show me your driver's license or what is your birth date or any of those things. And then what we saw, this just came out of our data. It wasn't the question we had started out to ask. So we had started out being especially interested in the hunting, of course, and so surprised that the old ladies were so productive, working on these especially strength-intensive resources, these deeply buried tubers, digging them. The little kids, even though they're very active foragers and they spend a lot of time and they're good at some things like picking berries, they try with these deeply buried tubers, but they're too little. They're just not strong enough to do it. So they have to depend on their mothers. And what we saw was that those kids, how well they were growing was related to how much time their moms were spending foraging until their mothers had new babies. And then there was no relationship anymore because moms were now focused on that newborn. Now the correlation was with grandmother's work. Seeing this particular trade-off in the data that grandmas were so important in the welfare of the kids that were already weaned, and moms had their next babies, pointed to this thing which is really odd about us compared to other mammals, which is how early we wean our infants. So weaning is when you stop breastfeeding, when stop, you stop drinking your mother's milk. That's right. In most mammals, when that happens, then the infant becomes an autonomously feeding juvenile. So as soon as it's weaned, she can have another because the previous one is feeding itself. In us, what we certainly know in modern people is how early we wean compared to our closest living relatives, much earlier than they do. We can do it because when mom moves on to have that next baby, grandmother is there to cover the weaned children. And that collection of things happening together would propel the evolution of increased longevity in our lineage. So that's the reason why grandmas were more likely to survive, more likely to be selected for in evolution. What in turn do we think grandmas might have given to us? What were the side effects of having grandmas apart from having more kids? 
so many things that go just with this kind of shift in life history. I think we've only started to scratch the surface with a few of them. When an infant is born, with those changes for mothers in the ways they allocate these things, the consequences for the infants are enormous. Unlike a chimpanzee infant that comes in not having to do anything to get mother's attention, now infants who are slightly better at attracting mom's attention, engaging other potential caretakers, the more effective they are at drawing us in, then the chances that they'll actually manage to survive this infancy go way up. Even when there are all these babies, when there's a new baby, that baby goes around, gets passed around. That baby might not even be on mom, but it's really important to attract mom's attention because again, whether or not you're gonna make it through infancy depends on whether she does give you the attention you need and whether somebody else does too. For an infant, being sure that it gets attention is really crucial in a way that isn't true for, again, our closest living relatives. We tend to think of our babies as being, quote, altricial. This is a label for being especially needy of attention and incompetent. So you think of a baby as just this sort of floppy thing, can't really do very much, can't even lift its own head. Babies are very motorically, you know, in terms of muscles, very altricial. They can't move around, you know, until they start to crawl. Socially, however, they are so precocious. There's a word for that way that infants try to engage with grown-ups who aren't their parents. Shared intentionality? Yes, and that covers a lot more things than just that. It covers what we're doing right here. So here I am. I'm looking Zasha in the eye. I wish I could look at the rest of you in the eye, but I'm trying to, we're trying to get on the same page here. This is a thing that's so important to us. This is a human characteristic. It's what makes our culture shape our lives in all these powerful ways. We get so much pleasure out of being on the same page with other folks. And here's an argument that says the reason we do that and the other animals don't is because of this history of selection where grandmothers were crucial. And this thing about interacting with others that then flowers into shared intentionality seems like the source of so much that makes us human. I mean, think about it. You've walked behind somebody with a baby in a backpack and seen that little one looking at you, and if you can get it to smile, it's so cool. We have that interaction pattern with those babies, and they are jerking us around. We get so much pleasure out of that. So those that are slightly better at doing that, slightly better at engaging others are the ones who become our ancestors. They seem helpless physically, but socially they're manipulative like the villain in a science fiction film. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Do you think grandmothers make us happier? Is this from the perspective of grandmothers or the rest of us? I think they often do. I think they often do. It's certainly the case that lots of people I know remember their grandmothers with great warmth And certainly watching people interact with their grandchildren where it seems that's the main source of their delight. And one of the things that they like about contemporary technology is when those grandchildren move to Italy, they can at least Skype with them. I think it's a problem because somebody needs to invent the Skype thing that will let the participants be eye to eye 
So we really need to be able to have babies and manipulate grandparents long distance. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe not move to Italy, one of those. Kristen, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thanks, Sasha. That was fun. If you'd like to know more, and there is so much more on this topic, Kristen is actually in town to give a lecture at Sydney University for Sydney Ideas as part of Science Week 2016, Grandmothers in Human Evolution. And as we recorded, it's in the future, but by the time we release this, it should be in the past, and we'll include a link to that in our podcast notes and on the show page for this episode. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash think to hear all of this season's episodes and three seasons worth of archived episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and get each episode a day early. If you like us, you probably also like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts. Choose some at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Not What You Think is produced by Olivia Perry Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. Show art by Annie Hamilton. Linda DeLacy is our production consultant and executive production is by Samira. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland and me. I'm Sasha Rosen. Next week, reading your own police state, Spy File.